Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, 3rd Nephi 12 through 16. We're just so excited to talk about the time that Jesus spent with the Nephites and the Lamanites in the New World. And we're going to give a perspective here that uh, might be helpful as you read these chapters. And this is a covenantal perspective. No surprise, we've been talking about covenants a lot, and actually so has God. The scriptures are very much focused on his covenants with us and the covenants he's offered us so that we can return back to his presence. And let's just spend, just as a review, a reminder of the two major covenants from uh, the ancient times, from the time of the Bible. It's two covenantal mountains. We have the Abrahamic covenant. And symbolically, we might say that that comes from uh, Mount Moriah. And then we have the Sinai covenant with Moses and the Israelites after God had saved them from Egyptian bondage. And we'll just put Sinai here. And so the covenant path in some ways crosses right between these two mountains and it is Jesus that binds us all together. And as we've talked about just briefly, the Abrahamic covenant is all about God's promises to us. The Mosaic Covenant is what God invited us to promise to Him. So it's our promises to God. And this is summarized by the Ten Commandments, which explain or offer a pathway for us to show our loving loyalty back to God. When God offered this covenant, he basically said, here's how I would like for you to show me your love and loyalty so that you can prosper in the land. Okay, so that's just the overview. Now, let's make this even more exciting. Let's think about the time of Jesus. He gives the Sermon on the Mount. And what I love about the Gospel writers and the Scripture writers is that they have so many interesting ways to teach us. And often they're packing learning opportunities into the Scriptures that they don't tell us about, but we can sometimes see with a little additional insight and study. And let's map this out. If you think about the first five chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, let's just map these out real quick. Matthew 1. Matthew 2, 3, 4, and 5. Now what turns out is that there is a strong suggestion that the writer of Matthew modeled at a high level each of his first five chapters on the first five books of Moses, which is also known as the Torah. And in a minute, you're going to see how it connects to covenants. And then we'll tie it into why Jesus 
is sharing an updated version of the Sermon on the Mount for the people in the New World. So let's take a look at this. Matthew 1 has a bunch of genealogy. In some ways, it's a bit like Genesis. There's just a lot of gen genealogy. And in some ways, it's kind of the, it's the introduction to the grand story where you introduce all the characters in, in the story. Matthew 2 is a bit like Exodus. And it's interesting, in Matthew 2, Jesus both goes into Egypt and returns. And a little bit like uh, how the Pharaoh had threatened the life of the Israelites, so was the life of Jesus threatened. Matthew 3, Jesus gets baptized, priesthood ordinances, is related to the book of Leviticus, which is the instructional manual for the priests for how to run all the priesthood ordinances. Matthew 4 is where Jesus spends 40 days wandering in the wilderness. And what do the Israelites do in the book of Numbers? But they actually wander for 40 years in the wilderness seeking God. And finally, right before they enter the Holy Land, Moses summarizes the entire Mosaic Covenant again for the, for, uh, before they go in the Holy Land. And the entire book of Deuteronomy is this covenant. In fact, Deuteronomy is a fancy word that literally means second law or second telling or teaching of the law. So, so essentially, Moses gets on a mountain and delivers the law to the Israelites before they enter into the Holy Land. Well, let's think about this. Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. What happens in Matthew 5? Jesus gets on a mountain as the new Moses and delivers an update to this covenant. He basically updates Deuteronomy, updates the stipulations, updates what we should be promising to God, updates how we show our faithfulness to God. And so the Sermon on the Mount is the update to the covenant. And so, sure, if you were a Jew living in the time of Nephi, the way you'd show your loving loyalty to God in the covenant is by keeping the Ten Commandments. In the time of Jesus, Jesus said, Moses said, here's the stipulations for how to show loyalty to God. I now say unto you, do these things. And so this is what modern revelation is about. Well, in the time of Jesus, it would have been modern re revelation. Is that God will update the stipulations for showing loyalty in order that we might have full access to the promises he offers us. So with this perspective, I want you to think about how what Jesus does for the Nephites now is something similar. He comes and says, you have been living these stipulations, these commandments. Good job. Well, in some cases you weren't. But let me give you an update for how to show love and loyalty to God in the covenant. And in our day, we have modern day prophets and they reveal to us the will of God. And every now and then there are updates on the expectations that God provides for us for how we live faithfully to him. Now what's interesting is there's a summary statement that shows up both in the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, as well as here in 3 Nephi. It's very significant. And sometimes we misunderstand it a bit as members of the church. 
Um, I know that I'm a perfectionist and I have struggled with this phrase in the past. And let me share it with you. It shows up at the very end of the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, both in Matthew 5 and in 3 Nephi 12. It is here in verse 48. After laying out many of the stipulate, updated stipulations of like how to be faithful to God, Jesus says, I would that ye should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Now let's unpack this just a bit. There's some interesting things going on. This phrase perfect, as I mentioned, has caused consternation and worry for people because we feel this need like, I gotta make myself perfect. And actually it's interesting. There's only one person that can truly make you perfect and that's Jesus. All that Jesus asks is for our loving loyalty. Now let's actually use a marriage metaphor. I'm sure my wife would, be, would love to be married to a perfect man. I'm not quite there yet. If, however, she has a loyal husband, that's actually sufficient. I may make mistakes, but I'm loyal. I'm completely committed to my wife. We are in a covenantal relationship and I am loyal to that. I may not be perfect, but I'm loyal. Similarly, she's loyal to me. And that's what God offers us. He has always been loyal to his people, always, always, always. And he wants our loyalty back. So it turns out that in a covenantal context, the word perfect actually can mean loyalty or faithfulness. And I find that very helpful because I cannot be perfect and I shouldn't try to be perfect because then I'm denying Jesus. And let me explain that just briefly. Only Jesus can truly make me perfect in the sense that I have no sin. Only Jesus can do that. I have to reach out to receive that from him, but that's through my loyalty and my faithfulness. And as a reminder, sacrament every week is an opportunity for us to declare our loyalty and our faithfulness to God. And so we actually are showing covenantal perfection by partaking of the sacrament every week. God does not make the gospel super hard. Now, life is hard, but he tries to keep it simple. Just love me, he says, and love your neighbor. So we read this again with that new context that the word perfect in a covenantal context means faithful or loyal. It says, I would that you should be loyal or faithful in the covenant even as I or your Father who is in heaven has been loyal and faithful to his covenant. So this one phrase is all about the two mountain covenants. God has always been loyal to us. All he wants from us is to be loyal to him. And he's now with the Sermon on the Mount given some updated instructions for how to show our faithfulness. And just out of uh, interest, when you compare the Sermon on the Mount to what we find in the Book of Mormon, there's sometimes some small but very significant differences. And one I'll point out right here in verse 48 is when Jesus is with the Nephites, he says, I would that you should be perfect even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Back in the old world, when Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount, 
He did not include himself, which is a little curious. We know that Jesus was sinless. He was, for all intents and purposes, perfect. But if we think about it from a covenantal context, Jesus had not yet fulfilled all the obligations the Father had. It wasn't that Jesus was unfaithful. He had not yet completed the fullness of what God had asked him to do. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, in the old world, Jesus did not include himself in that perfection. Even though Jesus was fully righteous, he had not yet fully completed the will of the Father. So now when he comes to the Nephites, Jesus has fully drunk of the bitter cup, has fully fulfilled the will of the Father. And with that full completion, he now includes himself in this phrase, be therefore fully faithful, fully loyal, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. So our invitation to you, there's many ways of reading this beautiful sermon that Jesus offers, is to consider the covenantal context and to listen for what is God asking for us today so that we can be more faithful and more loyal. And at a minimum, what I hope is you don't spend the years that I did feeling really anxious that I wasn't yet perfect and realize God doesn't need perfect people because his son will help make that happen. He needs a faithful people. And actually, I think all of us can be faithful. Do we fall from time to time? Sure. But if our hearts are with God, our faithfulness and loyalty will bind us to a faithful God who will bring us perfection through his son, Jesus Christ. All right, let's dive into the beginning of chapter 12. So Taylor already introduced this idea of uh, be therefore perfect. Here's the reality. Here's me, there's perfection, this is a really big gap. And it's not, it's not a word that I'm comparing myself to, it's God and Christ. It's beings, they're people. So there's this big gap between who I am and who they intend for us to become, like them. So he if we turn back to the beginning of chapter 12, it's fascinating to me that in both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon of the Temple, he begins with this long series of things that we call the Beatitudes. And, and they're simple statements, blessed are the blank, for they shall blank. I, I have to be honest with you, when I was a kid, every time somebody would ever start into reading the Beatitudes or teaching the Beatitudes, I, I had a tendency to kind of zone out I saw them as disjointed, um, I hate to say it, but I saw them as boring. Uh, it just felt like somebody up there saying blah, 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 blah to me. Here's why. Because in my mind, I saw these different groups. There's this group that's hungry and thirsty. There's this group that's really meek and just sits around very humble. And there's this group that is uh, poor in spirit. There's this group that's persecuted, and I didn't want to be a part of that group. And I always used to wonder, I wonder which group I'm in and, and how much I'm in any of those groups. And so to me, it was disjointed. It didn't make a ton of sense. Consequently, it was boring. 
as I experienced more life, as I had more teachers share insights, things started to come together to the point where now this is one of my favorite sections of scripture, period, anywhere. It is, to me, the finest lesson there ever was on repentance, on what it really means to repent. And I've had a lot of lessons on repentance. I've taught a lot of lessons on repentance, but none of them can compare to Jesus's lesson on what it really means to turn, to change the way we think, the way we see, the way we breathe the air, to use uh, President Nelson's great talk on repentance. It's to totally change the way we're approaching life. Well, that's what the Beatitudes have become for me, is a pathway that leads to perfection. To me, what we're about to do has become one of many ways that you can look at the covenant path. The Beatitudes to me are a symbolic representation of the very covenant path that we're, we're treading on. It's a blueprint for how to become more Christ-like, a, a, a true follower or a better follower of Christ, more faithful, more loyal to Christ in that covenant. Well, he gives us the engine, the vehicle whereby we can do that. Have you ever sat in church and had somebody share an insightful uh, lesson or give a, uh, an inspiring talk, something along the lines of come unto Christ and be perfected in him, or seek for all these wonderful attributes of God, and you're sitting there saying, yes, yes, I yes, that's what I want. But then somewhere in the back of your head, there's this nagging question, how? How do I, how do I come unto Christ to be perfected in him? To me, the Beatitudes, this covenant path representation, answer the question, how? How do I be a true Christian? Here are your answers. I think it all starts with uh, verse 1. Notice Jesus um, had called 12 apostles and he turned to the multitude and he's going to say to them, he gives, it's interesting here in verse 1 and 2, he's going to give four blessed statements that don't appear in the biblical Sermon on the Mount account in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The first one says, Blessed are ye if ye shall give heed unto the words of these twelve whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you. The first blessed is, can you trust me enough to give heed to my prophets that I've chosen to minister to you in your day? The second one is in the bottom half, or the, the last few lines of verse 1, where he says, Blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me and be baptized after that ye have seen me and know that I am. So to that group, that audience there, the two blesseds are, blessed are ye if you'll, if you'll trust me enough to listen to my prophets and get baptized. Then in verse 2, notice what he says here. And again, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words because you shall testify that you have seen me and that you know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe in your words and come down into the depths of humility and be baptized. So in both cases, it's to listen to my words and be baptized, but for the first verse, it's those of you who are here in my audience that he's speaking to directly, and the second group is those who aren't here today, but they're going to believe your testimony and get baptized anyway. 
which tells us that now you've entered into a covenant relationship with Christ. You're on a covenant path. Now, for me, the way I read this, the rest of these Beatitudes are how to progress along that covenant path, how to truly come unto Christ and become more like him, how to really repent. Look at verse 3. Step one of any repentance process or any blueprint that leads to perfection. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Taylor mentioned that there are some subtle differences between the third Nephi and the Matthew 5, 6, and 7 accounts. Uh, this happens to, this verse has one of them. You could circle the four words, who come unto me. That's not in the Matthew 5 account. Not once in the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus ever invite the people to come unto him. Now, he will later on in Matthew 11, but not in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He never says, come unto me. You're going to find the phrase, come unto me, six times in the third Nephi account. So, just pay attention to those as you go through because you, you don't find those in the, in the biblical side. Now, let's talk about the, uh, the group or the, this attribute that we're trying to uh, employ into our life. Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me. So, instead of looking at this as these different groups of people, let's look at it as steps that I have to take to become more like Christ without overly uh, turning it into a formulaic, you, you have to do it exactly this way. Let's just take it for what it's worth. Step one to consider is, blessed are the poor in spirit. If we were to ask most people, what does that phrase mean? I think the, the common answer to that question would be, well, that just means to be humble. Um, there's no question that humility is part of this step, but I think it goes further than that. I think it, I think you can learn some things by taking the opposite of this word. What would it mean if I were rich in spirit? If I had an abundance of spirit, an outpouring, an overflowing of spirit? It would mean I wasn't lacking very much. Blessed are those who recognize that they're not who they need to be. Brothers and sisters, uh, the humility required in the repentance process to recognize, wait a minute, this is who I am, this is where I am, there's my goal, it's Jesus Christ, that's who I need to become like, that recognition is, is a vital first step. I'll never go to the doctor if I don't recognize that I'm sick. I'll never sit down to a meal if I don't recognize that I'm hungry. I'll never go get a drink of water if I don't recognize that I'm thirsty. So, step one, recognize I'm lacking. I have a gap. I'm poor in spirit. I haven't arrived. Notice verse uh, four leads us to step two. Uh, after we've entered into this covenant path, trusting the prophets, getting baptized. Look at verse 4. Again, blessed are all they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We live in a world that is filled with people who are mourning, and yet we don't see mass comforting going on. So, the question is, why not? 
if it's step two, that means in order to have this promise of be comforted, we have to have that mourning be for the right reason. We're not mourning the way the Nephites did in, in uh, the ending of the Book of Mormon where they're, they're sad because they can't find pleasure and, and lasting happiness and joy in their sin. They were mourning to be sure, to, to be certain, but it was, for, it was built on the wrong foundation. This kind of mourning comes when you recognize, I am not who I need to be. I fell short yet again, and I feel bad about it. The promise is they shall be comforted. But you'll notice here that he doesn't give you timing. For some people, the comforting comes instantaneously. For others, it comes after a short period of testing. And for some of you, it comes after years and years of faithful enduring through darkness, through struggles, through feelings of, of abandonment, and through, through terrible trials and tribulations. But the promise is sure that they will be comforted. Which now leads us to step three. I've recognized a gap. I feel bad about it. What's the outcome? Verse five, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness, a willingness to submit to all things which the, the father seeth fit to inflict upon the child. Um, to me, meekness is best embodied in the Savior's statement in Gethsemane when he says, not my will, but thine be done. That to me is meekness. The promise here is they shall inherit the earth. So, notice the progression. I have a gap. I'm not who I need to be. I'm lacking. I feel bad about that gap. I'm now willing to do what God wants me to do in that covenant path. I've, I've tried what I want to do and it's not working for me, so I'm going to increasingly try to do what he wants me to do, which then leads me to step four. And you'll notice it won't do me much good to sit down on the covenant path meekly and say, God, I'm, I'm done doing my own will, I'm now going to do thy will, tell me what to do, and I'll sit here until you tell me exactly what to do. There's no progression in that. You'll notice what the fourth step is. Blessed are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. So, if you hunger and thirst, the implication is that it drives you to action. You've recognized your gap, you feel bad about it, you're willing to do what God wants you to do, but then you have to find out what God wants you to do. You, you search it, you seek for it, you try to feel that hunger and that thirst, that need. You're actively pursuing God's will and the promises you will be filled. Once again, I have to point out, God makes no promises regarding the timing on any of these blessings. Timing is reserved for him and his purposes. He knows what he's doing, and one of the greatest ways we can put our trust in him is to also trust his timing in all of this process. But it doesn't change the fact that we do our part. Notice verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now that's interesting. We've been doing so well. 
we've been turning in and looking at our soul saying, yep, I'm lacking some things. I feel bad about it. I'm willing to do what God wants me to do and I'm going and seeking his will. And then he says, oh, if you're going to progress, if you're really going to become more like me, if you're going to move forward on the covenant path, you have to be merciful. One of God's greatest attributes that the scriptures proclaim is his willingness to forgive and his willingness to extend mercy, especially where it's not deserved. Fascinating to me that this is put in here at step five to say, you are not going to become more like me unless you can extend that mercy to other people. It's almost as if to say, if somebody has offended you and hurt you deeply, that if you're unwilling to forgive them, in essence, what we might be saying to God is, no, Lord, that person's badness is greater than thy goodness. The infinite atonement isn't as big as that person's badness, is basically, basically what we're saying when we're unwilling to forgive someone and extend mercy. Uh, just as a side note here, think for a moment, who is possibly the hardest person of all seven point however many billion people there are living on this planet, who is the hardest person for most of us to extend mercy to? If you're like me, it's the person staring at you in the mirror. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Brothers and sisters, I don't think this, this part of the process is intended to only be outward reflecting. I think it's also intended to be inward uh, reflecting. For you to be able to look in the mirror and say, yes, you are lacking. You did mess up. You are not where you need to be. You are not who you need to be yet. And you're not glorying in that. You feel bad about it, genuinely. You, you, you feel it keenly and deeply in your soul. You want to be better. And you, you've turned to the Lord and said, I, I want to do thy will. That's where my heart is. The spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. I'm struggling. And then you hunger and you thirst and you keep trying to find God's will. And then you get to this point, I can't progress until I'm willing to drop not just other people's gaps that have negatively affected me, but my own gaps, to be able to drop them at the feet of the Savior and say, I'm, I'm done. I'm done carrying that. It's too heavy. I can't progress. Please take it for me. And that's his promise, to extend mercy, which now lets us move to this next step. Blessed are the pure in heart. Notice he's, he's getting us down to the, the motivation. What, what are your motives for, for moving on this covenant path progression? Why, why are you doing this? Is it to be seen of men? Is it to get glory, gain? Is it to build a following? What are you trying to do? Or is it because you love me and you want to become more like me and you want to become an extension of heaven, spreading the light and the goodness on the earth? And the promise there is, those people in verse 8 shall see God. Pretty good promise. Now verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
So it's one thing to have gone through this part of the process and to find peace yourself. But if you really want to be more like Jesus, you become a peacemaker. You now spread the goodness and the light and the, the revelations that you've found along that covenant path with other people, that it's not a selfish thing. You're trying to bring people to, to discover that same level of happiness and peace and joy that you've found, which now brings us to this eighth step that I can't fit in over here. Blessed are the all those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, nobody wants to be persecuted, but you'll notice in a fallen world, when, you, when you're doing this kind of thing, it will draw attention and you will find persecution. And ironically, sometimes the persecution comes from loved ones who are closest to you, sometimes it comes from people who should treat you better, and ironically, at a deeper level, sometimes the persecution comes once again from that person in the mirror who, who expects perfectionism, not a process that leads to perfection. Um, you'll notice eight steps. We went from where we are to where we're, we're, we're almost there. You just do this once and you're good, right? There's this little, this little factor right here, this, this greater gap. Brothers and sisters, this is not a one-time event. Discipleship, the covenant path, it's not an event. It's a long, grueling, at times beautiful and marvelous and, and wonderful, and at other times extremely difficult and hard and lonely process. And there are some who are on the covenant path pressing forward, going through dark periods of testing and trials, who feel like they can't go on. It's too hard. There's too much being asked. There, it's, it's, it's too heavy. And brothers and sisters, we all have uh, people in our lives who are in those kinds of, of uh, struggles right now. Part of our role is to be a peacemaker, to not, to not condemn them or judge them for their struggles or their, their uh, trials of faith, whatever they may be, but to love and to encourage and to support and to be with them until God sees fit in His timing to, to shine the light once again into their life and to illuminate their path forward as they continually struggle forward. Now, you ready for this? What was the promised blessing for those who were persecuted for his namesake? It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm, that's interesting. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That rings a bell. You've heard that before. Look back at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. I wonder, I wonder if it's possible that Christ connected this first and this eighth step outcome in such a way to say this isn't 
a one-time event. This is actually a very long repeating process. You do it again and again and again. And just when you get here, persecution makes you aware of other gaps that you have, other things that need to be worked on that you can then feel bad about appropriately, turning to the Lord to be comforted, turning to His will, seeking to find and know His will, being willing to forgive you and others who are struggling with these things you're working on for the right reasons, spreading the, the peace that you've found, and the process goes on and on and on through time. Bringing us back to something we talked about clear back in 2 Nephi 31, that discipleship really is going in circles. A lot of people grow weary in the church, feeling like they're just going in circles, doing the same things over and over and over again. They are, but they should be doing them at different levels as they progress. It's a plan of progression on the covenant path. The word path itself denotes something that's going to take time and you're going to have to take a lot of steps and some of those are going to be in the darkness, some of those are going to be in storm, some of those are going to be in a really steep cliff area, some of them are going to be in a beautiful meadow filled with wildflowers and wildlife and, and the sky is going to feel really close and you're going to love it and the sun is shining and it's warm and other times you're going to be climbing that path when a blizzard is raging and you're cold, you're lost, you feel alone, you feel forsaken, but we keep moving forward on that covenant path and Jesus, in my mind, gave us the formula, so to speak, the, the steps that we can continually follow to answer this question, how do I come unto Christ? I, I think he gave it to us here. Okay, you'll notice as he finishes the Beatitudes, he, he throws in a, another addendum to this, this last step. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For ye shall have great joy and be exceedingly glad, for great shall be your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. I love that promise that he's not, he's not promising you earthly wealth. Look at the Savior himself, look at his disciples, look at people like John the Baptist. They didn't have a lot as far as this world's uh, money and riches and honor were concerned, but that's not what they were focused on. Uh, the promise for them is, uh, is what would be given to them, this reward in heaven. Then he shifts focus into this comparison between the old law and the new law. So you'll notice what Taylor had talked about from the, the law of Moses on Mount Sinai. Christ is going to upgrade, <clears throat> update that covenant re responsibility and he does it very beautifully. Look at verse uh, 21, you've heard that it has been said by them of old time and it is also written before you. You'll notice in the, in the Book of Mormon account that from here on out, everything he says to them is, it is written, it is written, it is written, but I say unto you. So he's comparing the old to the new by saying, it's written in the law. In the biblical account, he only ever says, ye have heard, ye have heard, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old. 
Biblical scholars, pre, um, they, they guesstimate that at the time of Jesus in the Old World, in the Holy Land, that literacy rates are somewhere, you know, five to ten percent maximum among the people that Jesus is teaching. So for them, most of them haven't read. It isn't written before them because most of his disciples, especially in Galilee, can't read. So they've heard. It's an oral tradition. This is what you've heard. But in the Nephite and Lamanite culture, they seem to be much more literate. And so with them, it's written before you. You've got it. You've read this. It's just one of those little subtle changes that doesn't get anyone into heaven, but it's fun to see this, this contrast between the two, the two speeches. So, it's written before you, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment of God. That's the Old Testament law, very outward-oriented, very observable behaviors. But now he takes it to the heart. Look at verse 22, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in the danger of judgment. Uh, don't, it's not just what you outwardly do, it's who you're inwardly becoming. Once again, this pathway that leads to perfection, to becoming more like Christ. He does the same thing in verse 27, 28, with the thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. Again, not just the outward behaviors, but the inward becoming. And he continues that down through the rest of chapter 12 with various upgrades of the Old Testament law. And then you come to chapter 13. Uh, I, I learned this insight from Grant Anderson many years ago when he talked about this pathway that leads to perfection and how there are various pitfalls or places where people will struggle and get off of the path if they're not careful. Chapter 13 verse 1 is one of those pitfalls. Verily, verily, I say that I would that ye should do alms unto the poor, but take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, if you're doing your alms in order to be seen of them so that they give you the glory, then you're getting your reward already. That's a pitfall when we do good things for the wrong reason in order to be seen as righteous, as holy, as good, rather than just doing good things because we love the Lord and we want to be loyal to him, we want to be faithful to the covenants that we've made and we want them to, to recognize God's goodness in their life and give him the credit. Notice that he, he goes down through some other, so we get the almsgiving, then we get the prayers, how we don't pray in order to, to get glory for us, we, we do it, um, verse 6, he tells you, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father who is in secret. So here he's talking about this beautiful element of secret prayer that nobody knows about except for God. You're not trying to be seen as righteous. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we don't pray in public, in church meetings and in other public settings. Um, because we've been commanded to do that as well. But here he's talking about the intent of those prayers. Why are we doing it? He then 
comes down to verse 16, moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. In other words, you're, you're seeing all these, these Christian behaviors, giving alms, praying, fasting, and how you do them is very important to Jesus. The intent with which you're doing them is important to Jesus. Um, let me just share a personal experience that uh, happened many years ago. Our oldest son, Benjamin, had just turned eight, and it was fast Sunday, and we had told our kids, you're not going to fast until you've been baptized, and at that point, um, there's no, no requirement. We invite you to participate with us in this fast, and Benjamin was so excited to do it after his eighth birthday and after he'd been baptized. That all changed that first fast Sunday. Here came this kid who was trying so hard to be, to be faithful to this, to this fast with, with mom and dad. And uh, I'll never forget that Sunday morning, he came up to me looking really, really down and he said, Dad, I am so hungry, I want to eat. And I said, great, you've done a good job. You've gone, you've, you've gone many hours, you can go ahead and eat. And he says, I don't want to eat, I want to keep fasting. I said, great, then keep fasting. And he says, but I'm so hungry, I need to eat. You can see where this is going. I sat Benjamin down and I, I said, let me teach you something. And I put on two socks onto my two hands, little, little sock puppets. And I said, Benjamin, this one's your spirit. This one represents your, your flesh, your body. What happens is the body will say to the flesh things like, I'm hungry, okay, and I'm tired okay, I'll put you to sleep, I'll put you to bed. I'm thirsty, okay, I'll get you a drink. Before long, what happens is the flesh starts to rule over the spirit, and it's no longer making requests, but it starts making demands if we're not careful. So I said, Benjamin, once a month, God appropriately gives us an opportunity to have this scenario. I'm hungry. Good. What? You're not going to feed me? Not yet. I'm thirsty. Good. I'm hungry. Oh, thank you for reminding me. I'm fasting. What was I fasting about? Oh, that's right. And we pray. What happens over the course of a fast that's done appropriately is things get put back into order where the Spirit calls the shots. The Spirit is in charge. Now, we need to be really careful here because sometimes when we do analogies like this, we demonize the flesh, the body, and we say the body is bad, the spirit is good. The reality is, brothers and sisters, God has a body of flesh and bone, and it's not bad, it's not evil. Um, the, the devil himself never had a body, and yet he's the most wicked of all. So. The body itself is not evil, it's not bad. The beauty of, of what we're talking about here with fasting ties back into this covenant progression along the path that leads to, to eternal life. It's swallowing up my will in the will of the Father. It's not doing what I want to do, it's doing what He wants me to do. And that's really hard when it comes to things like food and water once a month. 
And for some, it's really hard with things like tithing. For some, it's really hard with giving up things like time to go to church or time to really pray and connect with God. And so, as we move forward on this covenant path and as Christ is laying out all these other behaviors, I think he's trying to get us again and again and again to get down to the heart of the issue, to say, what does God want me to do rather than what do I want and, and what do I need? Notice that he, he finishes off chapter 13 by uh, turning to the 12 whom he had chosen in verse 25, and then he gives them some very specific instructions, leadership principles in verse 25 through 34, and you can look at those in greater detail on your own. Uh, really, really profound instructions for how to, how to be a true Christ-like leader moving forward in the work. And then he comes into chapter 14, another pitfall that I, that I learned from, from Grant Anderson. Chapter 14, verse 1, and now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he turned again to the multitude and did open his mouth unto them again, saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, judge not that ye be not judged. Uh, beautiful that he's saying it's not your job on the covenant path to look down or up or in the mirror and judge and, and pass final judgment on people. I love uh, President Oaks gave a talk many, many years ago on judging and he talked about intermediate judgments and he talked about final judgments. And he says we have to make all kinds of intermediate judgments and later on Mormon is going to teach us how to judge righteous judgments in Moroni chapter 7. But what I think he's talking about here is stop looking around at other people, at the gaps that they have, at the struggles that they're facing, at the crosses that they're carrying through life and stop judging them. It doesn't do anybody any good uh, to look downward in judgment or to look upward in judgment. Either way, we're not focused on the next step on our own progression. The only time we should be looking down is in compassion, in kindness, in love, in extending a hand of fellowship to lift up those hands that hang down and encourage them to, to progress on that covenant path. Uh, notice that he then takes us down through these other behaviors of how a true Christian treats other people turning outward. So the rest of chapter 14 you're going to get how you interact with others along the covenant path. And then he finishes the great sermon with his beautiful analogy of the wise man and the foolish man, build his house upon the rock versus on the sand. And we've already talked in Helaman 5 about that foundation built upon the rock of our Redeemer, uh, how we have faith in Christ and uh, the devil will have no power over us to drag us down to the gulf of misery and endless woe if, we, if we're founded upon that rock. And then Jesus brings us into chapter 15 where he starts talking about how he has fulfilled the law of Moses. Everything that was in the law of Moses, he has fulfilled. Now he's given us this 
upgraded what we would call the law of the gospel, this higher law, uh, these, these new expectations. He talks in here about the other sheep, uh, that these Nephites and Lamanites are part of those other sheep that were mentioned in the Gospel of John to the people in the Old World. And then when you turn over to chapter 16, we get this incredible discourse about the house of Israel. In scriptures, you're going to notice there are three distinct groups of people. You have the Jews in Jerusalem, back in the homeland. You have the scattered Israelites, and they're all over the world. They've been scattered, so they're all over. And then you get the Gentiles. Those are the three major groups of people that come up whenever we talk about the house of Israel and the gathering of Israel. You'll notice Christ came as a a son of Mary, who was a Jewess. He is a Jew. His disciples are all, his first disciples in the first century, they're all Jewish. The gospel was brought first to them. Then at his ascension, he tells his apostles to go not just to Jerusalem, but to the scattered Israelites in Samaria and in all the world. And then lastly, the gospel is, take, take the gospel and preach it to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Abraham was promised that the the covenant given to him was to bless all the kindreds of the earth, not just his own family, ultimately. So you'll notice this progression that the Gentiles got at last. And in chapter 16, just pay attention as you go through to how Jesus teaches these, these Nephites and Lamanites who are part of group two here. They're part of scattered Israel, and they know that. They've been told that repeatedly. That's their identity. But watch how he talks about the house of Israel and how the Gentiles are brought into that discussion and how the Gentiles accept this gospel and will bring it to scattered Israel and eventually to the Jews. So the first shall be last and the last shall be first in the latter days. So pay attention as you go through to the role that the Lord has asked for the Gentiles to play. Notice that in verse 13 it says, But if the Gentiles will repent and return unto me, saith the Father, behold, they shall be numbered among my people, O house of Israel. This great missionary effort is to not just gather the house of Israel, but to gather the Gentiles into the house of Israel. They're adopted in. And it's powerful, this this work that we're involved in. President Nelson has told us there's nothing more important taking place on the earth than this effort to gather all of these groups into the house of Israel, into the covenant, get them on the path, trusting God by following his prophets, getting baptized, and then following those steps that we talked about in the Beatitudes over and over and over again as they continually progress to become more like God. Now, in closing today, uh, one of the other ways to look at Jesus' phrase, be ye therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, the Matthew 5, 48 version, is through that lens of a Greek world, the word perfect meaning complete, whole, lacking nothing, finished, arrived, 
um, brothers and sisters, it will be a great while after we pass staff out of this life, Joseph Smith said, until we attain unto that level of perfection. Don't look in the mirror and judge harshly. And we can probably all do a better job at not looking around us and judging harshly, but exercising that uh, Christ-like attribute of mercy and trying to be more like Christ and extending that mercy, especially when it's not uh, deserved. That's when we become more like him and we progress more on the covenant path. If you or your loved ones are struggling right now through a blizzard or through a dark night of trial and tribulation or feelings of abandonment on the covenant path or through a really steep, rocky uh, section of that path as you move forward, uh, my prayer and our hope and our desire is that you will press forward with steadfast faith in Christ, knowing that you can't take one step without him. This isn't about you working your way into heaven. This is about you coming unto Christ so that he can perfect you, complete you, make you so you're finished and whole. And I know he lives. I know he loves. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know how much you're loved.